Please be seated. You can take your copy of the Word of God and open with me to Romans chapter 4, or you can follow along inside of your bulletin, the second scripture reading this morning, Romans chapter 4, and we're only going to cover the first eight verses this morning. I was very ambitious a couple of weeks ago when I was looking at the chapter and thought I could do it all in one sermon, but then as I began to study, I realized that would be a big mistake. Sometimes it's good to slow down and uh, take your time and be a little bit more uh, microscopic, especially in light of the context of these verses. Now, you know, the Apostle Paul spent the first uh, three chapters of Romans making it clear that uh, Gentiles are sinners in need of salvation, and then Jews are sinners in need of salvation, and finally in chapter 3, all are sinners in need of salvation. And he made it very clear at the end of that chapter that we are saved, we are justified by faith alone in Christ Jesus. If you know the book of Romans, you could almost assume that Paul could go right into Romans chapter 5 at this point. It begins with, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But no, instead, he stops. And he spends an entire chapter giving us an example of justification by faith in our spiritual father, the father of the faith, Abraham. Why does he do this? Well, the gospel is always subject to misunderstanding, to distortion and confusion. And you remember that Paul has been laboring to convince his Jewish counterparts of the validity of the gospel. But as he does this, they misunderstand. For instance, Paul said, where sin abounds, or he will say in chapter 6, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And some thoughtful but mistaken Jews would say, well, all right, what you're saying, Paul, is that you're throwing out uh, the religion that we've all known about. If we are supposed to uh, receive God's grace for our sins, and, and grace, or our sins highlight God's grace, then you're telling us to sin all the more so that we might experience God's grace all the more. And Paul is constantly correcting uh, these Jews. And so I believe that he takes chapter 4 uh, to hold up Father Abraham as an example of justification uh, by faith and uh, really the whole nature of justification and righteousness and what faith is. And so we're going to spend two or three Sundays in this chapter as we look at these particular items. Let's uh, ask the Lord to bless our time together in study now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart might be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Father, we wish to see Jesus and him only. We pray that you would speak through these lips of clay as we depend fully and completely upon you and your eternal, inerrant, and infallible word. And so, Lord, I beg you, speak to all of our hearts of eternal things now in these moments, and we'll give you and you alone the praise and the glory. And we make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we'll look at the nature of justification and righteousness in this particular section of the book. Now, 
Righteousness and justification language occurs more than 800 times in the Old and New Testaments. And so it's important to look a little more critically at the words that are used. When the Bible uses the word justification, it has a Greek word which means just or justice, to justify, rightwise, to make one right. And it's really a forensic term. It means to declare righteous. If you stand in front of a judge at a bench trial, your guilt or innocence is depending upon the verdict of that judge, not a jury. And at the end of the presentation of all the evidence, he says guilty or not guilty. Well, Paul is saying this justification in the Greek, dikaion, points to the fact that God and God alone can declare someone righteous in his sight. I love the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 11, section 2. It says, Faith, thus receiving and resting on Christ and His righteousness, is the alone instrument of justification. That's a wonderful statement. The alone instrument, receiving and resting upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that is justification. Now, righteousness is the Greek word dikaiosune. You see the closeness with the word justification, dikaion. And righteousness goes beyond a declaration about us, and it points to the substance, uh, to the reason why God declares us righteous. See, God's declaration of a person as righteous in His sight is not arbitrary. The person must have the quality of righteousness which God demands before he or she can be declared righteous. And according to the gospel of Jesus Christ, one must be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ in order to be declared righteous by a holy God. We must look to Christ and depend on his merits, not our own. Now, in any discussion of biblical righteousness, we must distinguish between God's righteousness and man's righteousness. So bear with me for a few moments in these introductory comments. First of all, God's righteousness. God's righteousness is inherent because of His very nature and His attributes. There's only one true and living God who reigns supreme over all other so-called gods. And this one true and living God, the triune God is perfectly righteous and holy. He is perfectly sinless and absolutely faultless in any sphere or capacity. The psalmist said in Psalm 5, verse 4, God takes no pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with him. And I love the words of Habakkuk, chapter Uh, 1, verse 13 of the book that bears his name. He says, Your eyes, O God, are too pure to approve evil. And you cannot look upon wickedness with favor. You see, God is absolutely sinless. Absolutely righteous in his being. And you know what? He demands this perfect, sinless righteousness in all human beings he has made. 
if we are to be declared righteous in His sight. And so that is God's righteousness. And now man's righteousness. What does the Bible say about our righteousness? Well, first of all, that God made man righteous and holy in the beginning. Genesis 1.26, God said, let us make man in our image. And so God created man, male and female, in his image. And therefore, male and female were created in righteousness. Listen to the words once again of Westminster, chapter 4, verse 2. After God made all the other creatures, all the animals, he created man, male and female, with reasonable and immortal souls, endued with knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness after his own image. And so man, when he was created, had righteousness before God. We had unhindered fellowship with God. Adam and Eve did. But you know the rest of the story. Unfortunately, the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden led to the entrance of sin into the human race. For Adam and Eve and every human being since that time is born with what we call original sin. That is to say, with a sin nature. And so in summary, man's righteous standing before God was forfeited at the fall. And as God's created beings, we naturally owe to God what He demands. But sin has bound us and rendered us incapable of fulfilling God's righteous demands. We're stuck. And so the question before the house is this. If God demands perfect righteousness in human beings He has made, that is to say all human beings, and all human beings have become unrighteous due to sin, then how can we sinful human beings be made righteous in God's sight? That's the question before the house. And I'm glad you asked that question. So now we can approach the Scriptures and see some things from this eight verses that Paul points to about how God justifies sinners. I want you to notice three things this morning in verses 1 through 8. First of all, a discovery, and that is the discovery that Abraham makes as the father of the faith, that God justifies men on the basis of faith, not works. And that is in verses 1 through 3. And then Paul presents a contrast in verses 4 and 5 between working and believing. He wants to probe that a bit. And then finally, a personal testimony. David, King David's blessing of the forgiveness of his sins in verses 6 through 8. So let's look into the Word of God this morning and see how all this fits together. First of all, Paul presents a discovery. Abraham's discovery that God justifies men on the basis of faith, not works. You'll know Paul points to his audience to Abraham. Something that no conscientious Jew could argue is when somebody appeals to Abraham and makes the point, you can't argue with it. Because everybody appeals to Abraham. Even the Pharisees in the time of Jesus' ministry in the Gospel of John, when they were struggling and arguing with him, said, we are children of Abraham. And Jesus said, if you were a child of Abraham, you would do what Abraham did. But you're trying to kill me, and Abraham did not do this. And so Paul appeals to Abraham, And he asked the question, what did our forefather Abraham discover or find according to the flesh? 
We might put the question this way. What did Abraham discover concerning God's justification and righteousness and his participation in these blessings? Well, look at verse 2. Don't just look at what is written. Look at the way that it's written. In answer to this question, Paul points out the great gulf that is fixed between God's righteousness and our lack of righteousness by saying, if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. (laughs) But not before God. Why does he do that? Well, because we human beings tend to praise and prize uh, good actions, good works. We like law-abiding citizens. And boasting takes place whenever we compare ourselves with other human beings. Nevertheless, our sin and our corresponding alienation from God eliminates all boasting in front of Him. Why? Because all of our good works fall short of God's standard of perfection. As the prophet Isaiah said, all our righteous deeds are like a filthy rag in front of a holy sinless God. God's holiness and purity go far beyond our comprehension. Now, we live in a culture where God has been reduced to an afterthought, to the man upstairs, to some cosmic bellboy that we ring and call at our pleasure when we want something. And this kind of thinking leads human beings to think that they can make peace with their God. And all of this is fiction. God is eternally holy. You don't make peace with Him before He makes peace with you. And He has to initiate that peace-making process. But all of this is the result of not paying attention and being biblically illiterate to the Scriptures. What did Abraham discover? That God's righteousness is far beyond the grasp of any human being. Listen to the words of Psalm 50, verses 21 and 22. God speaking to His covenant people of their sins. He says, These things you have done, and I have kept silent. You thought I was just like you. But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this, then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. Our God is a sinless God, a holy God, and He hates sin. And one of the greatest sins of all is to try to make God in our image. Instead of approaching the Word of God and taking God for who He says He is, all of Him, all of His attributes, all of His characteristics. And so what did Abraham discover? He discovered that God is not interested in our works in our efforts to make ourselves right with Him. No, what God wants for us is to take Him at His word concerning our sinful condition and our deplorable lack of righteousness. God's demand for righteousness is not an objective we can work for or work toward. It is a gift He furnishes for us that we receive by faith. In summary, we have offended a holy God, and all the good works in the world will never satisfy the offense, and thus God himself must furnish satisfaction for our sins. For those who try to weigh the good with the bad, 
Think about that. Do my good works really eliminate my bad works? Well, let me ask you a question. If I were to make you an omelet with three or four eggs, and one of those eggs was rotten, the others were great eggs, everything's good. But I mixed all those eggs together, and I presented you with that omelet and expected you to eat it and enjoy it. But you have the knowledge that one of those eggs, even if it were ten eggs, one of those eggs was corrupt and polluted and putrid. No, I couldn't expect you to eat it. Any more than when we lift up our lives to God and we say, look at all the things I've done. Look at the person I am. I've never been arrested. I pay my taxes. I've been married faithfully for 40, 50 years. And God looks down and He says, you're forgetting the putrid stuff. And all of that poisons all of this. So we cannot work our way there. Abraham discovered that he was declared righteous before a holy God, not on the basis of who he was or the things that he did, but through belief, that is, through trust and faith in the Lord. Now notice in verse 3, Paul appeals to the Old Testament Scriptures. He says, what does the Scripture say? And I want you to make note of the fact he doesn't say, what has the Scripture said? It's all in the present tense. What does the Scripture say? Because the Scriptures are the very Word of God. And they continue to speak. God speaks through His Word. And that's why the Apostle Paul said in 1 Thessalonians, God performs His work in those who believe the Scriptures, who take them at His Word. And so Paul says, what does the Scripture say? And he quotes from Genesis 15, 6, the passage we read this morning in our first reading. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. You know, the word believe, once again, a little word study, the word believe in the Greek is pistuo. And the word faith is pistis. They're very, very similar. But pistuo points to giving credit. That is more of an intellectual belief. When the Bible speaks of belief, though, it means belief by faith. And pistis encompasses belief, but it goes further. It is a firm persuasion. It is something that can be a fulcrum for your life. That's the kind of belief that Paul is referring to here. I believe George Washington was the first president, but that kind of belief has no bearing on my life. It has no way of saving me from my sin. And it doesn't affect daily living. But when somebody says, I believe in Jesus Christ, it's not simply acknowledging the historical figure. You're saying, I believe that the man Jesus was indeed the God-man. And He came to earth and He died for my sins. And He was raised from the grave. And I put my faith and trust in Him. He is the fulcrum for my life. Now, if I'm getting ready to jump out of a five-story building and there's a, a big, strong man or four or five men down at the bottom and said, we will catch you when you jump. I can say, I believe you all day long. But unless I jump out of the building and exercise that faith, I really don't believe. Many, many other examples of this. Belief becomes real. Faith becomes real when we act. 
And the Bible points to a firm persuasion so that what we believe becomes the very foundation of our lives. Paul's argument is sound. And he appeals to the Word of God from Genesis 15, 6. And thus, to contend with that, or to contend that one can be justified by his or her works, is tantamount to invalidating the Word of God. Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now all of this leads to Paul's contrast in verses 4 and 5. And the great gulf between working and believing. Look at verses 4 and 5 with me. Paul gives a contrast between these two concepts. First of all, works. Look at verse 4. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. Paul has demonstrated that God justifies human beings on the basis of faith, not works. And now he takes it a step further to show why faith is necessary. Works lead to what is due. That is, payment or compensation of some kind. And Paul is saying that focusing on our works to save us demonstrates our lack of understanding, once again, of how holy God is and how sinful we are. Later on in chapter 6, we'll see that Paul says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. And what Paul is saying there is that you can work all you want to and do as many good deeds as possible, but in the end, God won't see the goodness of the deed. He'll see the badness of the worker because of the corruption of our sin. And so reliance on good works effectively eliminates the critical element of faith. A person is on their own in an attempt to justify themselves, so faith is unnecessary. And ladies and gentlemen, God demands faith. Hebrews 11.6, without faith it is impossible to please God. Because he that comes to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. And so works lead to what is due. In contrast, in verse 5, faith highlights the grace and the mercy of God. Paul has said essentially the one who works will get what is coming to him. And here he says in contrast, the one who believes, his faith is credited as righteousness. Why must we rely upon God's favor and mercy and grace? Because of what's in verse 5. God justifies the ungodly. We're dealing with a God who justifies the ungodly. You know, in these United States, I think most Americans believe that they're pretty good people and that God should grant them justification. God should let them into heaven. But I'm reminded of a statement made by Arthur Pink many, many years ago. He says, The God of this culture no more represents the God of the Bible than a flickering candle represents the glory of the noonday sun. And that is true. We don't believe that God is as holy as He is. We don't believe that God will judge every last sin. The wages of sin is death. Jonathan Edwards made that clear. He said, A sinner in hell will give everything he has and everything he owns 
to make the number of his sins one less. Why? Because every sin must be paid for. And if you intend to go into eternity and make compensation or payment for your sins, you will pay for every last sin in thought, word, and deed. From the time that you committed actual sins based on the original sin of your heart, you don't want to do that. That's why Jesus came. Jesus came. And that's why God is impressed not by our works, but by our faith, our belief in Him. We must rely upon God's favor and His mercy and His grace because we're dealing with a God who justifies the ungodly. And God's justification of sinners, ungodly sinners, demands His favor, His mercy, and His grace. In summary, our forgiveness. There is nothing we can offer to His kindness. It's belief alone. We are wholly unable to make compensation for our sins. But whenever we believe, whenever we trust in Jesus Christ, and I mean give our lives to Him in faith, then we're no longer resting upon our works. But we are content and at peace because Jesus paid it all. If God requires payment for every last sin, remember that when Jesus died on the cross, He satisfied the demands of the Father for every single sin in your life, past, present, and future. And that kind of love has to be responded to. I have to look at that and say, that is real. And that is what my whole life is made of, that this Jesus Christ died in my place. And He paid for every one of my sins. That's what sets you free. That's what enables you to engage in works. Not because you must, but because you want to. I remember going to church Sunday by Sunday with my mother when I was a child. And I was praying and begging. She'd have a headache, so I didn't have to go. I mean, on Friday and Saturday, I was hoping, I was praying that she'd have a headache because I didn't want to go. I didn't want to hear all that stuff. But at 18, when the Lord opened my eyes and my heart and said, God, it wasn't that this I died for sinners. I died for you personally. And I began to realize that Jesus died as my sin-bearing substitute. Things began to change. Now I couldn't stay away from church. In fact, my parents were angry at me for not coming home from church. I wanted to be there for everything they did. I joined the choir even though I couldn't sing. I wanted to be there all the time. I wanted to enjoy the teaching and the preaching. I wanted to share my faith. Not because I had to, but because I wanted to. Because now there was something inside of me that gave meaning and purpose and direction. Not to mention a clear conscience, the forgiveness of my sins. And I didn't do one single thing to experience that except I believed in Jesus. Belief alone, taking God at His word, leads to the favor of God's righteousness on ungodly sinners. 
Why? Because good works amount to nothing without the payment for sins. All the good works you could ever do, erase, they cannot erase and dispose of our sins. Now you see where Paul is going with this. He's saying, look, I want to give you first and foremost a discovery. What did Abraham discover? We must be justified by faith, not works. And then let me spend some time, Paul says, in a contrast, this is what works leads to. This is what faith, this is what belief leads to. And then to seal it all up, he says, finally, I want to give you a personal testimony. From who? From King David. You couldn't point, well, arguably Moses, but aside from Abraham and David, you couldn't point to more credible individuals for a conscientious Jew. And Paul says, look at the life of David. It is by believing alone that ungodly sinners experience God's grace and favor through the forgiveness of their sins. It's not a matter of what you do. It's a matter of what he has done. And Paul shows us the heart of the matter by this example in King David. He quotes David's words from Psalm 32. You remember that was one of the great uh, confessional psalms that David prayed after he committed adultery with Bathsheba along with Psalm 51. And David says in verse 7, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Paul quotes the words of David. And David describes his own personal experience of God's grace and favor and righteousness. Not because of his works, but because of God's gracious forgiveness of sins. A couple of practical implications for this. God alone is the righteous one. He is perfectly sinless. We cannot attain God's righteousness. It is so far from us, and no amount of good works could ever bridge the gap between God's righteousness and our sinfulness. That's what makes Christianity so distinctive amongst all other world religions. Every other world religion says in some form or fashion, man is attempting to reach up to this God. Christianity says this great, holy God is condescending to reach down to sinners, to sinful man, in order to save them by His grace. We must have God's favor and this result from taking Him at His word. First, it is God's grace and favor which allows us to see our ungodliness. And second, it is God's love and kindness which enables us to understand and believe the fact that this one true and living God justifies the ungodly. That means I don't need to clean up before I come to Him. I need to come to Him immediately with all my stuff, with all my sin, with all my regrets, and give my life to Him. Thirdly, we turn away from our sin and repentance and we turn to Christ and we keep on turning to Him, believing and trusting in Him alone to save us. Then and only then do we see the wonderful reality of our believing in faith is credited to us as righteousness. And we receive and rest on Christ alone. Let me invite you to do that today if you've never done it. If you've never received the living Christ into your heart and life, and if you're not resting upon Him in forgiveness of sins and purifying your life and giving you a free conscience now, a clear conscience to serve Him, 
If that isn't the case, I invite you to call out and ask Christ to come into your life. The Bible says, whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these great words in the letter to the Romans from the Apostle Paul. And Lord, you've chosen to work through the foolishness of the message preached. And so once again, Lord, without questioning, we will obey you. And we look forward, Lord, with faith, in faith, to what you will do in the hearts and lives of those who hear this message. Father, we pray that you would save those who are lost, and we pray earnestly that you would sanctify those who are saved. But do everything, Lord, so that you and you alone get the glory and praise and honor. And we make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.